Bodhasa. So we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. And in this liturgy, which is really a format for a sequential discursive meditation, the first question is very provocative, and it's certainly not at all rhetorical. So yesterday we were attending to that dimension of suffering called blatant suffering, suffering that we experience in body and mind. And the first question is, why couldn't we? Why couldn't all sentient beings, or just why couldn't we, be free from blatant suffering? But then we need an answer. If we can't be free, then there, there's no reason to hope for it, right? I, I'm not going to wish for anything that I know is impossible. Life is too short, right? And so why couldn't we be free? And when we consider the whole range of blatant suffering, then clearly a lot of it we've inflicted upon ourselves. That is, we human beings, we do it. And we do it out of acting out of anger, craving, hostility, delusion towards each other, but also towards the environment. And so a lot of the suffering we, do, we, we experience is, is compounded. That is, it's, it was not, not necessary, but it comes from our own unethical or harmful behavior towards ourselves, fellow sentient beings, but also towards the environment. Environmental ethics, as we now know so vividly, is absolutely essential. But then, why couldn't we will? Well, how about through education? Educating our children from kindergarten, from preschool on up. This is how to behave. Whether or not you're religious or not religious, that's your business. Whether or not you're spiritual or not spiritual, that's your business. But there's just basic, a basic kind of common ground of decency here. The Dalai Lama calls it universal responsibility or ethics in a secular context, where let's simply do our very best not to harm each other. right? And so certainly there could be a lot less suffering of the kind that we do, that we inflict, that we inflict. That's definitely possible. But then, of course, there's suffering that comes by illness, aging, death. There's no fast way. We're not doing that to each other. That just happens. And then suffering of body and mind that comes by way of natural calamities, forces of nature, and so forth. We didn't do that either. We're not to blame, so to speak. But then there's an, so and that, seem, that seems on the face of it to be inevitable. So the answer to the question, why couldn't we be free? Because nature is a tough place. And being born, we're subject to aging, sickness, and death, and that's pretty tough. Fair enough, very true. But even in the midst of that, there's a type of freedom that has been realized many, many times by the Arhats, by the Buddhas, by the Arya Bodhisattvas. And it comes by finding the inner key rather than the outer key. And the inner key is releasing all grasping, releasing all identification with this is my body, because that's why the suffering in the body gets us in its grip, because we grasp onto it. And that's why we suffer. Right? And likewise for the suffering that arises in the mind. It seems so up close and personal, so intimate. But it gets us in its grip, this emotion of misery, depression, anguish, and so forth. It gets us in the grip because we identify with it, because of the cognitive fusion. Now, is this going to be easy? Certainly not. But might it be possible to simply have the pain in the body arising, the pain, in ari pain arising or suffering arising in the mind, and it simply arises in the space of the body, it arises in the space of the mind, and it has no owner, no one to latch onto it. It just arises there. So no, anesthet no, no anesthetic, no deadening, no dulling of it, simply 
it doesn't get you into its grip because you have not got it into your grip. That's how the arhat experiences pain. No general anesthesia. So if you, if you tap an arhat on the wrist or on the hand, does he feel it? If it stings a little bit, there's a little sting sensation, sure, his nervous system is working fine. But the pain doesn't get to it. And pain in the mind? So there really is. So there's a response to that question. We really could be free. We could be free, or at least freer immediately, just by treating each other, making it a mass movement to treat each other ethically. Maybe it'll catch on. And there'll be so much less suffering for ourselves and other species. But then to gain that freedom, even in the midst of suffering, is to release all grasping identification of I and mine onto the body and mind. So here we move today to that second dimension here, I'm sure, anticipating the suffering of change. And then the question, the same question will be raised. Why couldn't we, why couldn't we all, why couldn't any of us here be free of the suffering of change and its causes? And its causes. Well, you know its cause. It actually is quite transparent. The diagnosis is complete. It's definitive. It's accurate. We know it. The cause, the root cause of the suffering of change is grasping, attachment. It's attachment, right? Out of the three poisons, that's the one, attachment. Attachment is grasping onto that which by nature is in a constant state of flux, and grasping onto it, if we don't yet have it, lunging for it, hoping we can get it and grasp onto it, or if we do have it, hoping we can hold it tight. So similar to looking at a beautiful waterfall and say, I want it, and just trying to grab it. You know? So it's delusional. Attachment by nature, by definition, as a mental affliction or afflictive desire, by definition is delusional in the sense that it's rooted in a misapprehension of reality. So it's non-reality based. But once you think reality should be more powerful than non-reality, therefore if we simply tap into reality, become more realistic, no reality as it is, then this type of suffering shouldn't have a chance. Because we should be able to cut right through it such that that craving attachment doesn't arise. Well, there's, there are methods. This higher training in samadhi. This higher training in samadhi. That's the antidote. And there's a bliss that comes from that. The Buddha called it the bliss from samadhi. And he said the bliss from samadhi is not to be feared. So even though it's not nirvana, it's not Buddhahood, it's not pristine awareness or ultimate, it's the bliss that arises from cultivating your heart and mind through meditation, through the four measurables, through shamatha, and so forth. But there arises a bliss from that. And it's not hedonic. And so, and it's enduring, and it's from the inside, and, and it's a keeper. That is, since you didn't acquire it from any place else, you don't have to lose it. Because it's a stemming from inside. You didn't acquire it, you discovered it, including the bliss of shamatha itself. You didn't really acquire it as if you didn't have it already and now you got it all afresh. Oh no, the nature of awareness is there. It's already there. So why couldn't we? All we have to do is kind of wake up on a relative level and recognize this hedonic treadmill, the ongoing, ever-hopeful quest Samsara will work out. Samsara will work out. I'm sure it will work out better than it has. I'm sure I just need to be a bit smarter and a bit luckier. I've had some bad luck for the last countless lives. But this one, it's going to be different. 
total amnesia from lifetime to lifetime, but even love affair to love affair and one situation to another, all this will be different. How many times have we heard the cliche that the, the, one of the definitions of insanity is doing the same thing all over again and expecting a different result? Exactly how many times do we have to try the hedonic treadmill to see whether it goes, turns out well? You know? So it's just kind of, really, it kind of seems like common sense. Just wake up. This hedonic tre treadmill just doesn't go anywhere other than perpetuating itself. And genuine happiness is right here in the palm of your hand. And you experience that and you're free. In a finger snap, you're free of the suffering of change. You get old, you get sick, you die. Okay, big deal. That was going to happen anyway. You don't have to suffer. So, that's, that's an answer. You have to see for yourself whether that's a satisfying answer. But could this be achieved? It's been achieved so many thousands of times that I think you really have to bury your head in the sand to say, oh no, it can't be achieved, that can't be achieved. Even in terms of shamatha itself, can we, okay, white-skinned people, as if that really matters, and we have a lovely array of ethnic groups here, so do we really, are we really going to get hung up on that? I don't think so, right? But that's not really the issue, is it? It's people like, like Chitra living in London. Ethnicity doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. It's London. <laughs> That's, that's the issue. Or Southern California, or Hamburg, or and so forth. That's the issue, not what your ethnic group is, let alone your skin pigmentation. That's crazy. But can we people, people like ourselves, right in this room and presumably listening by the podcast, who have not been raised in a contemplative society like Tibet 100 years ago, or India 1,000 years ago, and so forth, can we, given our conditioning, our background, and this world surrounding us, do we have a chance? of actually proceeding along that path of shamatha and just coming to the conclusion. Because the Buddha spoke so many times of the importance of achieving jhana. It must have been hundreds and not thousands of times. So important. And until you have, you still have those five obscurations. You're imprisoned, you're enslaved, you're lost in a desert track. So he wouldn't say that if it wasn't possible back then. And so is it possible now? Well, just fulfill the outer circumstances, like a contemplative observatory, fulfill the inner circumstances, and then see. But before you draw a conclusion, you might want to say, okay, if you think it's impossible or very unfeasible, like not worth spending the time, you might just want to ask yourself, among the nine stages, which one's impossible? Stage one's impossible? You don't know whether you're breathing or not? How about stage two? You can't possibly, by hook or crook, no matter what, you couldn't possibly attend continuously for one minute, ever? That's impossible? I beg your pardon. And then you just go right through it, three, four, five. But final note on this point, and that is, you know, even being presented where, and I didn't invent this, this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, the nine stages and the Buddha's emphasis himself on the importance of jhana as a foundation for vipassana. Crucial point here, and it will be the final point, and that is as we're practicing shamatha, as when we're practicing the cultivation of compassion, if we're practicing it with a sense that in the moment this is worthwhile, as long as later on something really good happens, I'll practice, but I want some assurance I'm going to achieve at least stage four. I'll practice, but I need to know. Show me some evidence 
that I can achieve shamatha. If I'm going to go into a one-year retreat, two-year retreat, whatever, show me the evidence. Can I do it? Show me. I said, okay. That person did it. Okay. Maybe we're similar enough. Okay. Okay, I'll practice. But you promised. If you practice, I, was, I would stop today. If that's the attitude, I'd stop today. You're on the wrong track. You're on the wrong track. You know you're on the right track when you're in the midst of the practice and you have the sense, this is the most meaningful thing I can do right now, even if I die in the next second. I do feel that. When I'm meditating, oh man, that's the way I want to die. Absolutely. On my cushion, stroke, heart attack, a meteor hits me on the head, whatever it is. That's the way I want to go out. Man, that's great. There was one old man in, in Dharmazala when, when I lived there. He wasn't even a monk or anything. He's just an old Tibetan, traditional Tibetan. And he was quite old. And then one day his, his neighbor, neighbor knocked on the door and he died. And there he was. He just was doing his prayers and he just slumped over and he was dead. And the neighbors thought, way to go. <laughs> nice, nice, good timing, dude. Way to go. You know, that, that's the way to check out. It really is. doesn't get much better than that. Right? So that's it. If you don't, you know, being here in, in the mind center, being on your cushion, practicing shamatha, four immeasurables, or whatever practice you're doing, because I know a number of you are augmenting the practice. Wonderful. But when you're doing that, if you have a sense while you're doing it, this is worthwhile, if and only if something really good happens later. I'd just stop right then. Go for a swim or something. Do what you think is more meaningful. Life is short. If you think something is more meaningful than that, then just do it right now. I don't care. Doesn't matter what it is. Right there in the moment, my awareness is holding its own ground. I'm being sane. I'm achieving shamatha. This is as good as it gets. Or I'm achieving vashana. I'm achieving, I'm cultivating, I'm unveiling compassion, loving kindness. And there's no imaginable way I can be spending this time better. Then continue. But if there's something better to do, do it now. There's the door. And I won't think badly of you. But there's the door. If there's something better to do, there's the door right now. That's my sense. I'm happy to stay right here. So I'm not going to leave. Okay? Let's practice. <laughs> in order to alleviate the suffering of yourself and others, together with its causes. With this motivation of compassion for yourself and all beings, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states as you've done before.
And now shift the mode of your awareness to this more passive cognizance, to the more creative and luminous aspect of consciousness. As you raise the question, why couldn't we all, all sentient beings, why couldn't we be free of the suffering of change and its underlying causes? And investigate. With each in-breath arouse the yearning, the aspiration. May we be free of such suffering and its causes, and as you arouse this aspiration, imagine breathing in the darkness of the suffering of change and its causes. Drawing it in from those who are near and far, Imagine this darkness dissolving, disappearing into the fathomless light at your heart. Disappearing without trace.
then if you will move beyond the aspiration alone to the aspiration maturing as an intention or resolve. May I free us all. Plunging deeply into the depths of your own identity, of your own being, with the power of your imagination plunging all the way to the depth of pristine awareness itself, May I free us all, and with each outbreath, tap from that innermost source. And as you arouse this resolve with its aspiration, with every outbreath, breathe out this light of freedom. And imagine that all those near and far, in all directions, Imagine each one becoming free.
then, if you will, arouse the final aspiration. May the gurus and the enlightened ones bless me, that I may be able to do so, that I may be enabled to free all beings. With each in-breath, imagine drawing in from all directions the light, the light of blessings of the enlightened ones, of the gurus, of your own guru. With every out-breath, as if your heart were a fulcrum, drawing in and then sending out, having drawn in the light of the world, sent it out from your heart, Imagine all beings being free.
then release all appearances, and release all grasping. And let your awareness descend, letting your mind settle in its natural state, your awareness dissolving into the awareness at your heart. And there simply be present, letting awareness illuminate itself. Enjoy the day.